0: Hello everyone, and welcome to The Promise, a podcast about healthcare that delivers on our promise to know you, care for you, and ease your way. On this podcast, we will talk with healthcare professionals and hear stories of compassion to help you navigate the world of healthcare with care, dignity, and humanity. I'm your host, Nancy Jordan, Chief Mission Integration Officer. And here with me today is Tim Serbin. System Executive Director, Spiritual Health at Providence. On today's episode of The Promise, we will be talking with Tim about his volunteer work for the American Red Cross as the National Lead for Disaster Spiritual Care. As we approach the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, I want to talk about the spiritual care work Tim did at Ground Zero for those working to help clean up and the families who lost loved ones on that day. Welcome, Tim. I'm really looking forward to our conversation on this little-known but much-needed work being done all around the world to tend to people's spiritual needs when they need it most.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Good to see you.
0: I'd first like to ask you to share with us a bit about your 30 years as a chaplain and working in spiritual care at Providence Health.
1: Well, who would have known? I'd like, be here 30 years, and, and the journey that that it that it took. I will say that what what I um I came to feel called to this work back when I was just 16. Just a friend, a friend of mine who is a, one of my good friends in high school. He began. He was diagnosed with a brain tumor, a glioblastoma brain tumor, and it was incurable. And we together just set out to with each other to learn what it was like to say goodbye. And I remember. Um, he didn't know how to do this and neither did I. And I remember getting just curious and watching at times that, um, how hard it was for friends to say goodbye and how harder it was for him because he had to say goodbye to everyone. And that brought me into a sense of, of just curiosity and walking closer to his journey. And I remember, um, his homecoming happened our senior year. And I watched him go from um, a spiritual infant to a spiritual master in that time and uh, a place that it was just powerful and beautiful. And it really kind of compelled me to, to lean in to healthcare more than just the physical, more than just the emotional, but to see the spiritual side. Um, it just opened a veil for me to, to explore and just get curious.
0: Mm. When we... Think about uh, the term vocation, Tim. I think of you because the term vocation, uh, I think there is a actual de- an actual definition that talks about where your heart's desire, where your where your passion is, where your calling leads you um, to meet a world's need. That is your vocation, and. It seems to me through your work with Providence, your spiritual care, and now hearing the journey from you as a teenager to the work that you do, not just for Providence, but also the work that you're doing for the Red Cross at the national level, really is such a vocation. It's just incredible that your gifts have brought you to that that point. And I'd like to take us to the work that you have done around 9-11. As we approach this very somber anniversary, you have many stories, um, you have done so much, and I know you don't put yourself as the center by any means, yet you were there on the front line and could help bring us back to some moments where you found inspiration and hope. Would you tell us a little bit about what you were doing around that time at 9-11.
1: Sure. Well, I happen to, to, to be introduced to disaster spiritual care really at the ground level um, when it, prior to 9-11 and before that, um, there was a TWA 800 disaster that happened off of Long Island. And the families asked Congress that they were missing three things. They were missing mental health, they were missing spiritual care, and they were missing childcare when they had to come to uh, the, the places where the accidents happened and the airlines were responsible for. And what ended up happening is they went to Congress and they said, we needed these three things. And Congress took the responsibility away from the airlines, gave it to the National Transportation Safety Board, the one who investigates accidents, and then The NTSB said we investigate accidents, but we don't know how to take care of families, so they reached out to the Red Cross. The Red Cross said we do mental health, but we don't know spiritual care, so they reached out to professional chaplaincy organizations and invited them to participate in this what was called the Federal Aviation Act, where it then entrusted the care of the families after big airline or big events that that transportation events that happened so that's how kind of red cross became um connected to initially airline disasters and now fast forward to 9-11 um the we and had prepared prior to this time this all began i was happened to be at the ground level in 1999 when um one of our national conferences, the National Association of Catholic Chaplains invited volunteers to participate in a training. And that training was one of the first ones. And we were trained with the FBI and the National Transportation Safety Board around how to provide appropriate and respectful disaster spiritual care to families. We were gonna be called to support the Family Assistance Center. We were gonna be called to support the, the reconstruction site, the place where the, the, re- the recovery work was happening, because sometimes the crash site and the airport site would have been two different locations and could be two different locations. And so the the plan was that we would be able to support the the, the support of the families as they arrived to ensure that they were surrounded with support. And to help facilitate locally what would be called the, the what would be a national memorial service, working with all of those who are involved internationally as well. Many times we work with various different nations. And so our, our goal was to to help support um, the provision of what we would describe as as a National Memorial Service that honored, we, we, I would say we build the stage so that everyone stands on it, but we never stand on it ourselves. And we want to make sure we ask the question, who might be missing from that stage um, to recognize those who are from each tradition or faith? So we look and ask the faiths of those who are on the flight, and we will then try to provide and support those uh, representatives to be present for that event. Um, and we also are we're called to facilitate what we would describe as Um, The site visit, or uh, an honoring where the families come to the site of the crash, where the disaster happened, many will ask why would you want to bring families to that site, or why would the families want to go to that site? And, and I have over the years come to understand that what is most powerful for the families is they want to be at the place where their loved ones last lived, and for them, it is. A connection that is why shanksville pennsylvania is a powerful place why it is important for families um, after 9-11 um, i was in washington at the time i was called just days after 9-11 happened um, i boarded a 767 just right after that to head to new york and um, i was called to to really support the initial Um, work of our disaster spiritual care team. We originally planned to have a team on the front lines and the team in the backup. In case one disaster happened, we'd have a backup team. We had three teams and 9-11 happened. And in seven days, all three teams were overwhelmed and and tapped out. We had a team at the Pentagon. We had a team at Shanksville, Pennsylvania for flight 93. And then we had a a large team in New York at uh, Brooklyn and at the ground zero. At the World Trade Center site, and so our our work was overwhelming from the very beginning. And we then began to factor in how might we then be supportive of those family site visits, the site visits, and the, the 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 support to the family assistance center when families arrived, um, to both identify and recognize and meet with the medical examiners to anticipate what would be next for them. They sometimes wouldn't meet with them until they could at least see the site and the site was not accessible to anyone except the workers and the recovery workers and the families um, were granted uh, access to be in that site and they were escorted from the Family Assistance Center which was in the Pier 93, I believe, and they went by boat to Ground Zero. And there we escorted them. Um, before they left, we had teddy bears and flowers on tables and, um, invited them to get, gather a couple or two or three for them. And we then went with them, escorted them by boat. They got into the place, um, right into the Harbor and we walked, uh, through the, the, just, the debris, the construction just—it wasn't construction. It was just r- the the demolition and the recovery efforts were happening. The families all wore yellow hard hats, and it was an indicator for all the workers that when the families and the rescue workers and the firefighters and others who arrived, when they saw the yellow hats, when they saw the families come around the corner, it would be like a wave of silence that would become would, would come. They would all stand in silence and allow the families to to come. And we had a memorial site where the families could leave um, flowers and uh, where they could leave something and we went to the site where they could see the site for the first time and that was the most palpable moment uh, um, for families to just be able to feel that uh, and see the, the just enormity of the devastation I I often describe that what we saw on television was like looking through a straw. Um, We couldn't possibly capture everything there was to see. And if you had 360 degree vision, you still couldn't couldn't comprehend how devastated it was. But the silence was often pierced with what I would describe as the family's primal grief as they encountered that first uh, sense of devastation um we accompanied them we we came alongside them um and and supported them as they came back um one of the first times that i brought the very first family i remember meeting a young mom who was pregnant at the time and uh she was waiting to go and she had this teddy bear and she was just holding it and she looked at me and she said is it bad and And I or she said have you been down there and I said I yes and she's like is it bad and I just said there are just no words and she's like you don't have to say anything your eyes say it all and and so she said that she had lost her husband her husband was they were searching at that time for her husband and um and so her family was with her and they had come Um, she walked past the memorial went to the site to see the site for the first time, and and their grief was held in a sacred way. Um, they then came down, and then they went to the memorial service. And usually they had two two teddy bears or two sets of flowers, so that they could leave one, and um, and help keep the the other for themselves. And we then walked them back and escorted them. And many times as they came back, they said, "Now I'm ready to begin the process for." the death certificate or now I know that there may not be any chance of them coming out, um, alive. So
0: Tim, you know, many of our listeners are probably able to identify everything about that day, how they felt, uh, where they were, what they were doing. I had just had a baby and I had just gotten home from the hospital from our very own, Providence, Queen of the Valley in Napa, California. And what you describe as that that primal grief, it just seems to me that there were so many, so much of the world was in that place. In what we sometimes call in the Providence system, the sacred encounter, that human to human connection where nothing else matters, except for the moment that you're you're in with the person and the person suffering right in front of you. And, and that's the very description of compassion. And that is what you did and all of your three teams and many more of whom I'm sure you pulled in so many questions. I have so many questions and I guess what stands out for me, in addition to my heart feeling for and wondering about that young pregnant mom, uh, where she is today and what she's doing and, and how she's found um, a way to move forward, although never forgetting. But I'm also thinking about your, you and your team. How do those who respond to disaster, especially at that, at that level, that magnitude of 9-11, how did you take care of yourselves? And, and what can those of us who are not doing this work do to help you and to help those who care for those who suffer to this extent? Well,
1: I will see that 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 doing this work is often. I just I just read a um, a Japanese Zen master's koan that said, "How do you take if you're if you're standing on a hundred foot on a one hundred on the top of a one hundred foot pole? How do you take the first step?" and that is often the feeling when you say yes to responding to this work it is a feeling as if you are standing on a pole and 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 expected to take the 100 or standing on the top of a 100 foot pole and and taking the first step you lean in and it is overwhelming and i think oftentimes when we talk about how do i care for myself i thought after 911 Maybe I would give myself, you know, a month or two. We often will say that it's important to um, really have a good self-care in chaplaincy. That's kind of 101. Um, we ensure that that it is important that we have a, a good self-care plan. Um, nothing could prepare us for 9/11. There were little things that could prepare us. Um, little things like at the time my son was two years old and I was 36, and I remember that it whenever he had a chest cold, um, we we would put VIX on his chest. And one of the things they said to use is use VIX when you go down to ground zero so that masks the the smell. And I knew right away that something like that wouldn't be something I would want to associate uh, every time he got sick. And so I ended up picking like um, Campophanique. I don't like the smell of camphor. <laughs> never liked it, never did, still don't. And I just remember, I, I remember using that and intentionally making that association, knowing that the trauma center in our brain is that the, 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 our sense of smell is the closest to the trauma center in our brain. So the sights and smells are the things that we could, could be activating after the fact. And so I had learned over time, it was at least six months, I think, of unpacking that in a tragedy and a disaster, it takes us just a very long time um, to go through the journey. But one of the images that, that settled for me in my, in my chaplaincy work and in my, um, my, my writing at times is on grief was that um, every one of these tragedies I, I, I learned is like a river shifting moment if my life is like a river our lives are like a river it flows and it moves in the direction that it chooses and it and it goes and when we get when we go through 911 for me was a river shifting moment it moved my river in a place that i never expected it to go i never knew and where I, I never i didn't know how it would happen like that it just happened and yet what i found is that um i spent a lot of time trying to get the river back to where it was before and i realized that um, crooked rivers are beautiful too. <laughs> so I, I realized that at that moment, I am, I, the image that I have is that in every time when you move, when you're moved through a tragedy like this, or even a grief or loss experience, there is that shifting mo-, mo experience that moves your river in a place that it's never been. And in the bend of the river is a treasure chest. And in that treasure chest are all the memories. The good, the bad, the ugly, all the things that you've experienced, everything I've experienced in 9-11 is, is packed in a golden treasure chest in the bend of this of my 9-11 river. And mm-hmm. in that bend, what I found is that in my journey in grief, when I get carried back on the, on the anniversary of 9-11, uh, when I hear Danny Boy on the bagpipes, when I hear Amazing Grace on the bagpipes, those moments um, bring me back to that treasure chest and all I'm asked to do or all I ask of myself to do is just unpack what I see on the top of the treasure chest. There's no way I'm going to ever unpack every memory and every experience, but I just unpack what's shimmering and shining on top. And I have learned that that also works with grief and it's also something that uh, associates with grief as well is that rather than thinking of it as being done in a certain amount of time, you can't unpack love completely you can't unpack all of the memories and all the journey and so so i have i have learned that in my journey i have to be very intentional so i'm as as intentional with the ways the sights the sounds the smells i'm also intentional about journaling as well Um, every day in a disaster is like a month or a week of time It's just it just gets expanded because so much is happening. You're almost overwhelmed with so much is happening. And so I I try to journal and I drop bookmarks on the moments that are um, ones that I need to go back and unpack so rather than trying to figure out how to deal with whatever story i might have heard or whatever experience i i will um i would describe it as dropping a bookmark or throwing a bookmark on top of it so that later when i come back to it uh, and i do the work of my um my own self-care uh, i we'll come back to the bookmarks. I could at least remember in my journal, I'll note where the bookmarks are so that if I need to unpack the trauma of a particular experience, I've got a bookmark to to, to go to rather than figuring out how to deal with the whole whole piece of it at the moment.
0: Tim, the way you articulate the, the influence of, the senses and the, the, the analogy of the river and life's rivers flowing, you know, no matter what journey we're on, or we have been on, um, that sometimes it, it makes more sense to, to go with the flow and to, um, and develop, develop those sort of strategic ways of responding and understanding and, and addressing what is right in front of you. Uh, you speak of, um, gosh, of the stories. And it's really the stories that that are such good teachers. The stories that we hear and the stories that I, I know that you have um, sort of put into that treasure chest um, and that pop up once in a while. Um, I wonder if you might tell a story or two uh, about some of the experiences you you had or you observed with the the our disaster relief workers at the site of you know perhaps I think I've heard you mention the, um, the 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 police officers that were there. Um, uh, there was a story about Portuguese water dogs and cards from kids, and so all of those types of um, encounters really help us go to that moment and then become part of our own treasure chest of understanding uh what happened and how we can again move forward
1: yeah i will say that yes so there is a um i remember walking down the street near saint paul's church i have vision so i have to. i I can remember the exact spot of where i was at various times but i remember i remember walking down the street and i'm laughing because um he was a New York City uh, NYPD officer, um, and he was a sergeant. And he screamed across because we had jack we had uh, vests on during the time identifying ourselves as uh, it said uh, chaplain on ours and on mine. And it said, um, and so he yelled across the street and he said, "Hey, chaplain." And I said, yeah. And he, he then used the expletive. He said, "Are you effing Catholic?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, uh, yeah." I yeah. do it again. How do you respond? I said, "Yeah, yes, I am." And he's like, "I got a question." He said, "Have you?" He used it or He said, um, "Have you got a minute?" And that was the code word um, when you hear, "Have you got a minute?" So in chaplaincy, oftentimes the um we talk about spiritual assessment and spiritual assessment is an evidence-based process and it can be very involved and engaged. Uh in, in disaster work, spiritual assessment may be very basic. It's often water, it is often checking in, it is often the question, how you doing? Or in New York ease, it was, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> so um so he then said, Can we talk? and i said sure so we came around the corner we were on the street and he came around the corner and he said i got a question that i can't answer and he said i don't know how to answer it and i need a catholic chaplain to help me he said i'm catholic my family's catholic and he said um he said my son he said my son is 11 years old and he said um he said i i i have been here 20 hour days he said i get there i get home when my son is asleep and i leave before he wakes up And I barely even seen my family. But he said the time that my son woke up, he asked me a question that I couldn't answer and I needed someone to ask. And I said, what was the question? And he said, my son wants to know what about those people who jumped from the building? He said, what happens to the people who jumped? He said, "Um, in my faith, he said, "Um, suicide is a mortal sin. Mm
0: -hmm. And he
1: said, how do I explain to my son what happens to the people who jumped and i'm like wow and he said i've been holding that and he said and i've been getting there late at night and so i haven't had a chance to see him but tomorrow i'm off and i'm gonna see him and i need to end. he's gonna ask me that question again what do i say so i slowed way way down i caught my breath and i just reflected i, I said um first i said um there were many people in the building that day. And I said, um, if someone was running down the stairs, away from the fire, and they tripped, and they fell, and they hit their head and died. Is that suicide? Or is that fleeing danger? And um, I said, none of us has any idea what was behind everyone in the midst of that what horror they had that was pushing them i said if the person who was on the stairs was fleeing great date grave danger the only way out imagine how horrible that was behind them so none of us could even know what that was like so to flee grave danger is never Wrong. It's, that is that is what it, i mean it, it is no different that's what i mean it's no different than falling the down the stair and and all and he's like uh, it was like this relief came over him <clears throat> and he had it in perspective realized that uh i can make sense of what my faith teaches and make sense of this recognition that that all the all anyone in that day was doing was fleeing horrible danger and so he he was like, I, I can use that. I can use that. I will, I will, I will say that. And I said, before we go, I said, can you do me a favor? And there was a respite center at St. John's um, uh, University down the corner where the, where the firefighters and the rescue workers would come, and they would, they would rest, they would get food, they would get, um, they would see the cards. That's where you see the Portuguese water dogs and others. And they, um, I said, would you go down and and, and would you get a stuffed animal? We have the tables of stuffed animals. I said, "Would you get a stuffed animal?" And I said, and, "And just before you go home, or when you go home, take it home." I said, "And put it in your son's bed, and let him know that when he sees this animal, that means that you were there, and that um, leave it there so that he has a feeling when he wake up, when he wakes up, he knows that you've been there, and that he's, that, that you've got done something that that both helps him." feel your presence when you're here because I'm sure he's overwhelmed and and scared. And he was like, yes, I, I can, I will. And, and he was just, just again, so grateful to be able to to process and talk about um, what he, what he experienced and what he felt. And, and at St. John's when you mentioned the water dogs, um, they were the comfort dogs. They were the things that 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 again, the firefighters and others. We had we had no words. We didn't have a lot. Nobody wanted to say anything, but they came to the cards. The children's cards were just unbelievable. They were incredible, um, and the dogs. And they would just go to the dogs. The Portuguese water dogs are real curly haired. I mean, not little, but they're big. And they just would. The firefighters would just. Put their arms around the dogs and they their tears would just pour um and they would that was a as good or greater of a, of a spiritual engagement encounter with them um than than anything um, i remember the uh, one one firefighter um, was needing to go to church on a sunday and he said chaplain um, I gotta get to church. I can't, I, I gotta, I gotta get to church. And he said, it's mass, it's Sunday and I got, I'm going to miss church. And so we kind of ran around a little bit trying to figure out is there, you know, are there any, uh, masses still happening that evening is by five or six o'clock at night. And by that time they were all done. And, and I had to tell him, no, there, there isn't anything, any, any place that's open. There's not no, no mass happening now. And, but I said, can we just go sit down and talk? And he's like, yeah. And I said, how many people do you think were at Mass in all around the world? Just Masses that were happening all around the world. And I said, what do you think they were thinking about when they were at Mass? I said, I bet every single one of them was thinking about how important it would be for them to be here. If they could possibly be here, they would be here. I said, maybe, maybe for this moment, could you possibly just let them attend mass on your behalf and in these moments that you're here um may you stand sorry could you stand in their place and be their representative when they are thousands of miles away and be there for them and he said yeah i could do that and we broke bread and I will say we celebrated the greatest sacrament of communion together um in that moment of realizing that we were not separate people doing separate things, but we were united with a family around the entire world. Um and that I, I often say to people who say, I wish I was there, that um there was someone standing on their behalf um that day. And so they were, they were, and.
0: You know. Oh, Tim, I mean, I just feel like we could go on and on and I could mm-hmm. learn so much in your stories, in your approach, in your processing. Uh, and, and you, you were so wise in your mm-hmm. companioning with that, that individual that we were all there that day. And, and in those months and you know moments after watching and wishing we could do so more so much more than we were doing but you're right we were in solidarity we we were there we were journeying along with all those directly affected with all those in it supporting and helping and serving and i, I just think to be able to share these stories and your willingness and your vulnerability to share these stories mm-hmm will keep these these moments of, of, of difficulty, of, of grave, grave tragedy um, alive, but in a way that helps us find the humanity and finds the connection and finds our own ability to feel when fixing isn't possible. Absolutely. And that's what you've done with us today. And I am so, so grateful for this time with you and for your willingness to share all that you've shared. And I just wish we had another hour, honestly, or another half hour even. But I thank you so much for being with us today. You're
1: so very welcome. And I just want to say just on behalf of those who are doing this work every day, um, that that this is a, an extension of the love of the american people what i often say when we show up is that when those can't be there um, we are extending that support that it is more than just physical support that happens from the the Red Cross. And in this case, it's more than just emotional support, but it's the spiritual support that cares for the whole person and really stands on behalf of those who can't be there and and, and brings the the embrace of the American people there. And I'm just so grateful of the generosity of our volunteers and the generosity of those who support the work of the Red Cross, because all of us are volunteers uh, doing this and just from the sense of from pretty much a, a self-interest need to be able to make sure that our families are supported in something like this as well. So I just appreciate your your willingness to um, to take this time to honor, to honor the lives of those we lost on 9-11 and to honor those who served and those who, who continue to carry uh, the weight of this journey uh, since 9-11 too.
0: Well, we hold each and every one up Every day and especially as we, we come to this uh, anniversary mm-hmm. that's that's coming our way. Thank you. Thank you, Tim, and thank you for joining us today on The Promise. We look forward to sharing more stories of compassion and caring with you in future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to providence.org. Please note that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening and at Providence. We see the life in you.